Jesus, we thank you so much for the gifts you give to each one of us in various ways, and we thank you for that gift this morning of song. Lord, and I pray that day by day as we journey in this world of sin and struggle, that you will meet us. We know you will meet us, but help us to meet you and to truly journey with you until the promised land. Lord, as we talk about this favorite subject of ours, grace today, Lord, help us to learn how to better live in grace. In your name we pray. Amen. The former president, George W. Bush, in his remarks at the funeral for the Dallas police officers that were killed earlier this year, said, too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. And this has strained our bonds of understanding and common purpose, and I believe it has strained our understanding also of our common need. This is not just a challenge in the general populace or on the national, uh, in the national discourse of this nation or of this world. There, this is a challenge that exists within the church as well. Judging other groups by their worst examples and then examining ourselves by our best intentions. There is a sign that I've seen, a phrase I've seen outside a church. I've actually seen it in several churches here and there on their marquees or in their advertisements that may come in the mail. And there's a statement I've seen a, a splash across some of these marquees or across some of these advertisements. And there's the statement, this church is for sinners only. Another uh, phrase that I, the cousin of this church is for sinners only that I've seen, and you may have seen this as well on marquees of churches, no perfect people allowed. I, in fact, I have a book. I own a book with the title, No Perfect People Allowed. There is an underlying issue, though. There is an underlying issue with both of these cliches. These are, these are cliches that we like to throw out. And if you're a preacher, let me just tell you, if you want to get a strong amen in certain environments, throw out those lines and you'll get an, an amen. But these phrases speak to an idea uh, that has become popular. Uh, maybe it's not a spoken idea, but it's an idea that exists probably in the back of our minds, maybe even somewhere within our hearts. This idea that Jesus only wants to save those, or maybe we should say that Jesus is only really trying to save those who recognize their need of a Savior. Well, I believe those phrases are put on marquees and they're sent out in advertisements or they're put on books or they're said from the pulpit with good intention. People usually write these things or say these things to try to convey the idea that this church is a welcoming church or this church is a loving church, to convey the idea that we accept you as you are and so does Jesus and all these things are true. But I believe over time, these cliches, these, these phrases, these ideas, they, they leave this subtle message behind them. They leave this subtle message in their wake. This idea that, that we know we're messed up at this church, so we're more loving than those that don't know they're messed up, and therefore this church is welcoming of those who know they're messed up, but those who don't know it, you can just stay away. This strains our bonds of 
understanding common purpose, and again, I'd add recognizing the common need. Let me give you a for example of how I believe this phrase, while these phrases, while cliches, how they, they take root somewhat in our discourse and in our hearts and in our thinking. This scene may be familiar to some of you. If you've been in a, in a, in a group of individuals that has ever been sitting around and discussing church or spirituality or, or, or religion in some way, you probably heard at one point in time someone make the point, I know that I've done this, someone make the point, you know, I knew a person that obeyed all the rules went to church all the time. They list all these things. You know, they, they carried themselves perfectly, and then they followed that up. But they were the meanest person ever. They had no love for Jesus in them. And people will nod. Yeah, I, I've met those people too. Some of you can nod right now. Yeah, I've met those, those people too. But the scenario is not complete because oftentimes when someone in that type of discussion starts the story with that that, 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 that picture, inevitably, whether the same person or another person, after talking about the, the pharisaical Christian, then they, then they add, but, or, or on the other hand, I also knew a person that really struggled with their walk. The, this person, and then they'll list maybe some sins that they did, and they'll give an example of some of the things they've done, but then they'll add, but they were the most loving person I ever met, and in many ways... And they'll say this, and in many ways, they are more Christian than the churchgoer or the rule follower. And everybody will go, yeah, I've, I know those. We've been in, you've been in settings where you've heard those type of discussions? I knew a person, oh, they acted perfect in every way, but really, they're the meanest ever. But I knew this person that struggled, that was, man, they had all these sin issues, but man, they were the nicest person. That person was more the Christian than the other person. And there is almost this idea within a context of that conversation, there's almost this idea that, you know what? Our, who we want to reach and who we want to mission to are those loving people, no matter how messed up they are. But you know who we really want to kind of leave our church? Are those Christians that act so good but really are the meanest people ever. I mean, it's not just you guys. If you talk to any group of pastors, I'm pretty sure any group of pastors, and you ask them this question, would you rather have someone that just is a total mess up and struggles with sin, but man, they know they're a mess up. Would you rather have that person, or would you rather have the person that's the perfect Christian in every way, but, but man, they're just kind of a Pharisee. Every pastor will tell you they want the, the messed up person. They don't want to deal with the Pharisees either. There's this idea, there's this, there's this tension that has been built between these two camps that almost that the person that's messed up is really the one we need to focus on and that person who doesn't recognize our need, well, God love them, please go to another church. Such stories have strained our bonds of understanding and common purpose and I would add even common need. It might be wise for us within the context of those conversations to remember the statement by Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian up in New York City, in which he said, if in the midst of having pharisaical conversations about Pharisees, or if you are having a pharisaical conversation about a Pharisee, you are one too. Just something to remember uh, from the wisdom of Pastor Keller. But here is the common need that we all have, the common bond that we all share. And that is the fact that whether you know it 
or you don't know it, we are all in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. And we, as believers, are to demonstrate that grace to both those that know it, that they need that grace, and those that don't recognize that they need that grace. Thus, we come to our text this morning, Luke chapter 15, one of the most famous, one of the most famous uh, stories of grace in the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 15. Let us read from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, the story of the prodigal son. A famous story that we like to preach on to talk about grace, to illustrate grace, to illustrate God's mercy and love. And Jesus said, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, and we love this part, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Verse 25. Now his older son, the father's older son, was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. One of the great stories and pictures of grace in the scripture. In this story, the obvious picture of grace uh, we immediately swing to in most sermons and in most books and talks I've read about this 
are in verses 21 through 24. The father running to the son. We love this picture. And it is a good reminder to us that, that, that it's not us that runs to God. It's God that's always pursuing us. God is always chasing after us ragamuffins, after us uh, prodigals out there. The son trying to submit as a servant, but being welcomed as a son. The son saying, I'm not worthy to be your son. The father's not even paying attention. Go get the robe. Go get the ring. Get the fatted calf. Let's have a party for my son is here. Everyone celebrates, or almost everyone. And that is the story, the picture of grace that we often see. And we love that picture of grace that is in that story. And that is the picture of grace that we preach on. But then there is another brother that shows up on the scene, the, the older brother who is, who is angry that his younger brother is being welcomed home so warmly, who refuses to go into the party uh, for his brother, who yells at his, at his father for the grace that he has given. And in this portion, we oftentimes focus on solidifying our strained bonds against the legalist, against the Pharisee. After all, we know from Luke chapter 15 and verse 2, Luke chapter 15 and verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so with that lens, with that thought in mind, we assume that the rest of the story is this condemnation against these Pharisees, this, this condemnation against legalism. And, and it is indeed, in fact, a condemnation against that attitude. But I would offer that, that this part is not actually a story of condemnation in any way, shape, or form in the true focus of it. It's not a story of grace here and then condemnation over here. But rather, what I see is a picture of grace all the way through. Can we read maybe this, picture, this portion of the parable and see something different? Maybe because I have been a Pharisee at times in my life and maybe because sometimes I still am a Pharisee in certain ways and in certain situations, I'm appreciative of the second story of grace that I see within this parable. See this with me in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing and I've always wondered how he heard dancing. They must have really been stomping it up in there. And uh, don't worry, I'm not going to start dancing up here, but just be careful to condemn it all the time. So they must have really been making some noise because he heard the music and the dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. And then it tells us in verse 28, But he was angry and refused to go in. He was angry and he refused to go in. Now here comes, that's the point that we oftentimes focus on. We say, man, what a selfish brother. Are we that older brother? Do we have that attitude? Are we, are we shunning people? Are we keeping people out? And we get caught up in the action of the older brother. But we shouldn't get caught up in that moment because I don't know that this is the point of this moment. Don't get caught up in our desire to condemn and miss the object of the story. The object of the story is actually not the prodigal. It's not the older brother. The object of the story is all the way through is the father. How does the father respond? Now, who does the father represent? 
Go ahead, you can say it a little louder. I know there's theologians in here. Who does the Father represent? God. It represents, it represents the Lord. It represents, it represents God. We can focus on the younger brother, oh, this prodigal son, he's come home, but the real point is how the father responds to him. We can focus on the older brother, what a selfish and, and, and jerk of a brother, but the real focus should be on the father and how the father responds. And we see the brother that, that doesn't want to go inside and we think, what a selfish jerk this guy is. But notice... But notice how the father responds to him. He was angry and refused to go in, verse 28. And so his father came out to him and entreated him. The father represents the king of the universe, the almighty God. And he comes out of his own house, comes out of this party celebrating this saved son to beg, to plead, to encourage, to implore the legalistic brother to please come into. Please receive this moment as well. The father is entreating him, and the brother, though, he, he interrupts the father, and he says, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat and, that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, doesn't even claim him as his brother anymore, this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, and you killed the fatted calf for him. You killed the fattened calf for him. Again, we may pause and say, Wow! Again, the selfishness of this pharisaical son. He thinks that the love of the father is only his and shouldn't be shared with, with, his, with his wayward brother. And, and, and our, our mindset would potentially be, likely be, to condemn this older brother. Would likely be to chastise this older brother, to, to scold this older brother, to, to, to bend him over our knee and to spank him if we need to. And, and if you don't think that's the case, then think about this scenario. Your kids are playing with something and one child does not want to share with the other child. And we say, you need to share with your brother. And they say, no, I'm not going to share. This is mine. I worked for it. I did the right things. This is mine. And we say to them, if you don't share, then you get nothing. Some of you have said that before. If you're not willing to share, then you get nothing. But it's not fair. I shouldn't have to do this. And one of my favorite things is say, what's my least favorite phrase? And my boys go, it's not fair. That's right. Tough. Life's not fair. Anyone ever said that? Can I get an amen? Life's not fair. Tough. This is how, if we don't think that, that, that we are prone in this moment when, 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 when the older brother is accusing the father of not being fair, of saying, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, this is mine, I shouldn't have to share anything, then, then just look at our own lives and how we do it. We, we would do this. We would say to that older brother, look, fine, if that's the way you're going to be, then stay outside. I've got no time for this. I'm going inside. I'll leave you here to yourself. A kid throws a fit, someone throws a fit, hey, look, it's obviously something you're upset about. Stay in your room. That's fine. I'm going to go over here and deal with this. The father, though, notice the reaction of the father. Again, the focus should not be on the brother. Hey, that brother is such a jerk. We want to condemn him. But notice what the father does. He said to him, son, verse 31, you are always with me. And all that is mine 
is what? Yours. I say, if you're not going to share, then you get nothing. The God of the universe says, I want to reassure you. I want to reassure you. My grace is still yours. My grace is still available to you. For you. Now the story leaves us hanging. We don't know if the brother came in. God does not force any of us to accept grace. God does not enforce any of us to accept the love. But the brother did not, if the brother chose to stay outside, he didn't stay, choose to stay outside because God was condemning him. He didn't stay out, choose to stay outside because God threatened him. He didn't choose to stay outside because God punished him. If he chose to stay outside, it was because of his own hardened heart. But the grace of God, the grace of God that was extended to the younger brother, to the prodigal son, that we all celebrate, that we all love. We love that God extends his grace to the prodigal. We love that God welcomes him in with open arms. We love that God runs to him and, and gathers him up and, and throws a robe over him and puts a ring on his finger and kills the fatty calf. We love that they're singing and dancing over this wayward son. But that exact same grace is given to the Pharisee that we just wish would go and join another church. Your son's throwing a fit outside. The father goes to the younger son when he's a long ways off. The older son, when he's outside, who goes to him? The father goes to him again. The same grace. The younger son receives praise and grace and mercy Yay, the older son, all that I have, all, all that is mine is yours. I give it to you. The same exact thing, it's parallel. What does this tell me? This tells me, this parable is a picture that shows God is not looking to further strain our bonds of understanding and common purpose, and I would add common need but rather he is a God that extends the same grace and mercy to the sinner you may feel that is far beyond God's mercy and to the Pharisee sinner that you may feel is far beyond God's mercy. In other words, whichever category the person is that you really don't like, that person, Jesus is not condemning. He is extending grace to is extending grace to. Both the rule keeper and the rule breaker are recipients of the grace and in need of the grace and the love of Jesus. In the text we read today in Romans 3, the Bible tells us that God does not differentiate between one or the other. Let us, through his power and his strength, be just as merciful as he is to whoever we may not like and to whoever we may not really want right now in the kingdom of heaven. Let us remember that Jesus is going out to meet that very person. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you.
that you go out to meet the reckless sinner and that you go out to meet the legalistic rule follower. Thank you that your grace is extended to not some based on their recognition of their need, but your grace is extended to all. May our hearts all be softened to the point that when you extend that grace to us, we will come inside and fellowship with you. And may our hearts be softened to the point that even those we may struggle with, that we will seek ways to say, you too, come in, because God's extending his grace to all men. In your name we pray, amen.